0: Sure. So I began Adobe and Teardrops, in part inspired by the band we're going to be talking about, Cowboy Mouse. Adobe uh, and Teardrops is a lyric from one of their songs, Man on the Run. Well,
1: hey, y'all. Sloane Spencer here. You found us. It is One Hit History. We're real easy to find online, onehithistory.com, or support us at patreon.com slash History. We are aware of a bit of an audio echo in this recording. We couldn't hear it during the recording, but upon editing, it was like, oh, no. Thankfully, only a handful of these early episodes have this problem as we switched the technology we were using and resolved the issue for future episodes. I'm talking with somebody today who is a music person that, if you don't already know, you should. Behind some incredibly important and fascinating outlets, Adobe and Teardrops and Rainbow Rodeo, the zine you definitely need to know, Rachel Colst. Hello.
0: Hi. Uh, Thank you so much for having me and thank you for that really uh, generous introduction.
1: Well, absolutely. So real quick, before we jump into the big question and the fun part of this, creatively, what have you been working on lately? (laughs)
0: That is a rueful laugh because I've mostly been writing essays since I'm working towards my MSW. And after about five years of doing freelance journalism on tight deadlines while working a full time job, writing like a five page paper, double space is like really nothing to me now.
1: But it's still (laughs) time and energy. Definitely. Definitely. So give people the quick rundown on what Adobe and Teardrops is.
0: Sure. So I began Adobe and Teardrops, in part inspired by the band we're going to be talking about, Cowboy Mouth. Adobe and Teardrops is a lyric from one of their songs, Man on the Run. Yeah, that was always meant to be a space to focus on artists who were flying below the mainstream. Sonically, of course, I think it's sort of getting more of a resurgence. But in the early 2010s, there was a lot of crossover between punk and country that I found Mm -hmm. really exciting. But then also artists who are generally marginalized by the music industry. So women, LGBTQ people, BIPOC people, and to really shine a light on those artists within the Americana world.
1: Definitely. Uh, And so there are extensive online assets that you can investigate regarding Adobe and teardrops. And that's interesting that you say this because punk is how I found country as well. I did did not grow mm -hmm. up with country and have zero background in it other than that, that I've discovered through that kind of punk country world. So I did not realize we had that in common. And then Rainbow Rodeo is a great scene. You've got one gorgeous issue.
0: Thank you. We are working on issue number two, but that explanation is going to be a lot simpler. It's a zine by and for and about queer country music.
1: And you are in the midst of a wonderful community of that where you are as well.
0: Yes. Yeah, I've been writing for a number of publications that all promote diversity within Americana and country music, such as No Depression and The Boot. And I've written for country queer in the past, but I'm no longer writing with them.
1: So really wonderful content out there and Rachel is easy to find online and you definitely should check out her amazing both interviews and written content that is available as well. So this is probably, I have two favorite questions to talk with folks about. Music people in particular, like hanging out backstage or when you have that weird, like awkward, like the sets delayed Mm -hmm. 15 minutes, what are we going to talk about? Because then I have to MC this event. And my two favorite questions are two new podcasts. And this one is... What's your favorite one-hit wonder?
0: (laughs) I could probably list many, like, true one-hit wonders, like, off the top of my head. Just nostalgia for 90s rocks, because that's when I was, like, a younger person, my teens and teens. But for today, I chose Jenny Says by Cowboy Mouse, which is not even my favorite song by them. But I think it's the song that they're the best known for. And one could argue they were a one-hit wonder, and especially the Southeast, with that song.
1: So, absolutely. (laughs) So, here's the interesting thing. I know this song as a Dash Rip Rock song. Oh, cool. So, I'm quite a bit older, and I came Mm -hmm. up as a huge fan of Dash Rip Rock. We used to go see them a lot, Mm -hmm. although they are from Louisiana. I'm from Atlanta, and they had a big hub in Atlanta. In fact, there was this great 688 Club where you go see all the great shows, and then 688 Records put out some compilation albums, one of which had A couple of songs from a band called Arms Akimbo, a couple of songs from a little band called Driving and Crying, and a couple of songs from Dash Rip Rock on it. And so Dash were like we would they came through town monthly and we would go every time.
0: So the connection between Dash Rip Rock and Cowboy Mouse is that Fred LeBlanc, who is from New Orleans, was the drummer for Dash Rip Rock briefly. Briefly. And And I guess he contributed Jenny Says. And then he left to start his own band where he could be the front man and the drummer. That was so Cowboy Mouth.
1: I remember all of this happening as they came through town and they suddenly had this new drummer. They did play that song. It was almost identical to the version of it that we all know now. Um, a little more of a dash take on it, but he was drumming and it was him on the vocal. And then it came out on their album Ace of Spades. And then very quickly, this is like mm, approximately 1989, I'm going to guess. Um. Very quickly, mm. Cowboy Mouth was a thing and was coming through town. And they were much more what you see when you think of like Fred Blanc's stage persona now.
0: Yeah, like it's also like a huge country influence. Yeah, because John Thomas Griffith, who is still playing guitar and one of the founding members, like he hung out with all the all al- country people. He was telling me one time he, he was like, oh, I left with th- in a house with him and this person, this person. I was like, holy shit, dude. <laughs> And then uh, Paul Sanchez was also part of the founding trio. And I I think the timeline was he had been up in New York, where I'm from, trying to get into the folk and anti-folk scene and then came back down to New Orleans. And he had already been friends with John Thomas. So they all ended up doing cowboy math together. And I don't think any of them really expected it was going to last. I think there had been some longstanding personality clashes, conflict. (laughs) Basically, propelled the band for about 15 years before I left.
1: They were kind of known for that being part of what was going on with the band. For yeah, for I hadn't, you them
0: know, when I was a kid. So, like, I was blissfully unaware, even though I got very involved in all the various Cowboy Mouth message boards that there were.
1: Oh, so this is fascinating <laughs> to me. So, the version of Jenny Says from Cowboy Mouth, when you think of it in music cultural history right now, is the version they released in 96 that actually did chart in 97. So, Technically, it is their one hit, although my definition of one hit wonder is what is that one song this band is known for? And this is very much it. I think to this day, they still close out all their shows with it. Oh, yeah, totally. It's cathartic every time, too. (laughs) Just type in Cowboy Mouth Jenny Says Live and just watch some videos. You're going to be like, I'm going to watch this 25 times in a
0: row. Yeah, if you've never heard them before, you probably want to watch them first. As we can see, because Fred already recorded the song with Dash of Rock, and then he recorded it with Cowboy Mouth, but they recorded that song like twice. So he often will go back to older material and re-record it. And I think that was a motif with the band, and part of it was, I think, artistic reasons, but also like financial considerations as well, because they jumped around to different record labels.
1: Various labels work in very different ways, and that has drastically, drastically changed over the last several decades. And many bands that you probably know and love from, say, the 80s and 90s are getting nothing off of the recordings that they made at that time. And that's why a lot of bands go back and re-record. Among other things, they deserve to be compensated for their art.
0: Right, like Taylor Swift re-recording all of her albums. I mean, she can do that because she can. I know Cowboy Mouth did eventually buy their masters from MCA back. Ah, Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it it was really tough for them for a while. I interviewed Fred and JTG last spring, you know, when we were all in lockdown. Right. So cool to have, uh, you know, 90 minute conversations with both of them. And then separately, it was fascinating. They were both saying exactly what they thought.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Let's do let's dive deep into this. So My cultural knowledge of Jenny Says is pretty limited to the early part of it. And honestly, although I saw Cowboy Mouth maybe six years ago, I'm not super aware of them and their songwriting within the community of the kind of the punk country world. How did you, as a New Yorker, end up a fan of Cowboy Mouth from New Orleans? (laughs)
0: Um, So I think the short version of the story was I had just sort of fallen into classic rock on my own. I mean, other than the Beatles and the Beach Boys, it wasn't really something my parents listened to. I don't think they were like into that music when it was popular. My mom loves classical music and my dad has so many Kenny G albums. And But I got into classic rock and especially like the sort of heartland rock and southern rock of like John Mellencamp
1: particularly. For some reason, not Bruce Springsteen. Okay, this is interesting. So what Mellencamp was speaking to you? I have to know this. Jack and Diane. That was like... Okay, so not like Ain't Even Done With The Night or something like that.
0: No. And then when I found out he had done all those other songs, I was like, oh yeah, I like them a lot too. Um, Okay. So anyway, I went to this summer camp in New Hampshire that has a different name now, but it used to be called In. And then after... So there's the Interlock in... in, Where is it? Minnesota. The music one. Yeah. No, this was not (laughs) it. So they've changed the name now and the original family sold it. But the point is that one of my counselors, who I'm still Facebook friends with, I don't know, she was in her like mid-20s or something, and she was in between apartments. So she packed up all her and brought it to camp. Awesome. <laughs> and and like, just had it. And so when we were getting up in the morning and like sweeping like the little cabin and making our beds and stuff, she would play music. And one of the albums she put on was Word of Mouth by Cowboy Mouth. And like uh-huh. that was it. It was over. I mean, she also played stuff like Train before they were super popular, better than Ezra. Like, I'm guessing from the music she had, like, Todd the Wet Sprocket and stuff, she was into, like, college rock from the South. We listened to all of that, but there was something about Cowboy Mouth that really spoke to me, and I think it was the gesture towards country music.
1: So this is fascinating on a lot of different levels, because <laughs> I, I've always been, like, a music fan, and my parents are big music fans. So I grew up with a bevy of both classic rock and R&B specifically in our household and old school soul. So that was our background. But summer camp was a huge influence on me musically as well. I went to an academic camp on a college campus and I discovered college radio when I was like 10 and became absolutely obsessed. And so it's interesting how it's, it's kind of like that right time of life that suddenly like this random man speaks to you deeply, you know?
0: Yeah. And then like 90s college rock has like a very specific sensibility where it's like happy and sad at the same time. And when you're mm-hmm. 13, like, 12 going on 13, like, yeah, that hits the spot. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I am absolutely fascinated by the fact that Cowboy Mouth is the one that ultimately spoke to you. And really, from what I know about you and your work musically, has a foundational band. Would that be appropriate to categorize? Yeah, totally. This has stuck with you all of this time. Mm-hmm. How has Jenny Says and or Cowboy Mouth kind of evolved for you in the influence and things that are still of interest to you about it?
0: One thing that's really important to understand about Cowboy Mouth is that the music isn't the only part of experiencing the band. But Fred, as the front man, leaves, like this whole stage pattern almost like there's this one press clipping that they keep using about how like it is sort of rock and roll gospel like the songs are sad because they are rock and country songs there's a lot of breakups and heartbreak between like the three of them <laughs> their process was that they didn't really write songs together as a band so much again because i think of the personality conflict john and paul would write a lot of stuff together and then paul would also bring in stuff he'd and then they'd write some songs on their own and then um Fred would write songs by himself and then they'd bring them together and like record the ones they all really liked and then they all have like their own separate thriving solo careers as well so that's like that's where they recorded the rest of it it's democratic and it makes sense right like you do stuff some stuff by yourself and I didn't know it was because they couldn't stand each other but the shows themselves have like this glue of positivity, like connecting all the songs and, uh, this idea that like you can do anything and you can get through these difficult times. And now look, like, we're all here at this rock show and we're going to live for the moment, like right now and celebrate life and all of the hard parts of that. And all of the joyous parts of it. Fred has like this knack of finding people who are like shy and timid in the audience, especially kids and mm-hmm. like bring them up on stage and making them feel amazing. And I was never uh, one of those kids, but because I think you could tell that my sister and I were too shy. But you know what I mean. Like being at those shows just felt so good and so nice. And again, when you're like a preteen and a teenager, and you're like thinking that maybe you're gay and you're not like the other kids, and everything's hard. Like that was like a really important thread to hold on to. It definitely shaped me as a person, and then hopefully uh, how I approach music and my other like social justice related activities, this idea that like things are hard and things are sad and that's part of life, but so are like the uplifting parts and they can both can be true at the same time. And you always have to instill that sense of hope and celebration and everything.
1: One of the things that I frankly was always confused about with the band, their shows even now, well, COVID is weird time warp. Their shows are really fun and uplifting. And of course, their lineup has morphed over the years, but You know, even back in the day when I would go see them on a regular basis, they were really known for their interpersonal conflict and large clashing egos off stage. And I was always really surprised when I saw them play because they were I I had fun at every single show. And I'll contrast that with like the Robinson brothers who I knew back when they had a band called Mr. Crow's Garden. Even back then, you were waiting for the brotherly fistfight every night. So those shows weren't always fun. I think Cowboy Mouth really has found some way to use the creative tension in a way that brings a positive experience for the audience. And there aren't a lot of groups with genuine, true, long time conflict like that who can who can do that. What was interesting about
0: talking with Fred and uh, John Thomas or he goes by Griff or JTG separately. And I was like joking about the lack of press training, but like Yeah, they talked about that conflict very candidly. I think there's still a lot of emotions around it. Um, I have not spoken with Paul about it specifically. If you follow him on social media, he makes his feelings very known. He and I have like a weird personal connection where it turned out that my fourth grade teacher, who is the one who inspired me to become a teacher, he worked on a movie with Paul and they had stayed friends. And how could I have known that? Right. I got into right. the band when he was my teacher. But then I think I mentioned to him because I knew he was from the South. Hey, did you know this band Cowboy Mouth? And he was like, holy shit. Well, He didn't say that because he's a teacher. So. <laughs> right. I was he was like, of course I do. I knew Paul. And I was able to like, pass a couple of messages back and forth between them. <laughs> what a
1: small um, world.
0: Yeah, it's weird like that, right? And then the other weird thing is that Paul lived, when he was in New York City, lived like in the neighborhood I live in now, which again, Manhattan is only 24 miles long. But, you know, folk musicians weren't living in Inwood and Washington Heights in the, in the 80s. Right, the 90s. back then. So, no, I've not formally interviewed Paul. I know he was going through a lot of personal difficulties in the spring of 2020 so I didn't really want to bother him right. but back to the two interviews that are recorded and that I'm not telling you to go find them on my podcast where can people find those conversations I think the easiest way would be to go to Adobe and teardrops and then search John Thomas Griffiths and search Fred LeBlanc because I talked them on to like the podcast so there's like 40 minutes of music and then these interviews that are also pretty long but you can skip around
1: if you all want to yeah. be able to hear those conversations, you should definitely check our show notes. We'll have those links available for you right there at OneHitHistory.com.
0: Yeah. And so I think like the biggest takeaway I got from the two interviews was that Paul does see himself as a songwriter. And I think JTG does too. And Paul was always really focused on the band being like an outlet for creative expression. Mm-hmm. And Fred saw the band as this show, this experience that you go to. I think the conflict was around what is the mission of this band and what is supposed to happen on stage. Uh Aha. And so you'll see in like the later albums, the albums like Uh Oh and Voodoo Shop going forward from there, because they haven't really had that many since then. You can see that the songs are very much intended for a live show and to be sung along to. And so in my opinion, they do lose some emotional depth. And then Mm -hmm. when Paul left, they're just not the same they're catchy. But I think that's also maybe why they haven't recorded that much original music in the last 10 years.
1: As I said, I saw them about six years ago is the most recent time. It was clear that the bulk of the set was, we are bringing you these songs that by the second chorus, you can all sing along with us, even if you've never heard them before. Like it was that kind of performance.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think like, there are definitely some cool songs post like 1999 or whatever. but. I think Voodoo Shop is probably like their last great album. And that was definitely influenced by Hurricane Katrina. They're all from New Orleans and, you know, it's a huge part of the band's identity. And of course the identity of the people in it as a result of the hurricane, maybe some attitudes softened and there was more collaboration and co-writing. And you mm-hmm. can hear that as a strength throughout the record, in my opinion.
1: So I've never survived a hurricane on the level of Katrina, but I do live in hurricane zone where we deal with small scale hurricanes seasonally. And it's it's very much a part of life here of being prepared for your hurricanes. And you have hurricane shelves and a hurricane bug out bag and a plan and all that kind of thing. But of the folks I know who survived Katrina specifically, I think it was a for every one of them that I've spoken to you about it specifically. It was definitely a life changing experience, even for the people who were not directly impacted by the flooding and the aftermath. It was reevaluate your life experiences, which I feel like a lot of folks I've talked with are experiencing now through COVID as well.
0: Yeah, Paul lost everything, and and you hear that in some of the songs. It is interesting to listen to Fred's interview because he talks about during that time period the band was in debt. I think from trying to buy back the MCA masters, and I think once the uh, "We're All in This Together" kind of faded away, and Paul was like, "What the f- is happening with my life?" Like, again, yeah, not to speculate too much, you know, provide re- some of the tensions. And there's never been, like, one dedicated bass player. And then when Paul left, again, with, like, bringing in new guitarists, I think there were some um, interpersonal tensions around, like, who was on whose side. For sure. <laughs> but um, for a while, they hired a number of women bassists, and that, that mm-hmm. was really important for me to see. And then it turned out that at least two of those women bassists were also queer. And <laughs> I was like, oh, hey two role models now. So that was also great as a little baby gay. Why
1: do you feel so connected to Mary and Sonia? And then when I heard their own (laughs) solo music, I was like, oh, yeah. Representation really matters. And as women rock fans or women music fans of popular music of any kind, you know, I can name for you the first women guitar players and women Mm -hmm. bass players that I ever saw, because that was like, a novelty in the best way of like, holy cow, like a woman can play a bass. That's awesome. And I, I didn't even know that was possible.
0: Yeah, I mean, I bought a bass because of them. Mary Lesang, you know, good old New Orleans French mm. name. If you look up her music, it's sometimes under Mary Lesang, L-A-S-A-N-G, um, and Sonia Tetlow. It's inspired me know, to buy either. a bass. Uh, Sonia wow. was in a band called STB. Uh-huh. Uh, that was on that sort of Athens scene. I listened to that band's first album again recently and like <laughs> it's still so amazing. Like experimental, expansive, like Annie DeFranco kind of rock right? rock and roll. I know that they hung out a little bit with the Indigo girls mm-hmm. or at least Amy Ru. So I would definitely recommend those albums too. They're like on sort of haphazardly <laughs> on like Bandcamp and Spotify. Like, if you search right. STB, you'll find them. Maybe if you search Sonia Tetlow, and she's had her own recent records too. Sonia also inspired me to start Adobe and Teardrops because I didn't realize what it would be like to be a music blogger. So I kept writing to Brian Childs on Nine Bullets, being like, yo, you should check this person out. You should check her out. I promise I'm not a publicist, I'm a fan. Now knows a yellow flag. <laughs> um, <laughs> But I also didn't know that he was getting like hundreds of these emails a week, if not a day. And so I was like, oh, if he's not responding to me and I'm feeling like Nine Bullets isn't writing about as many women as I would like to see, I should start my own blog.
1: So this is kind of cool (laughs) because I will say that I have since become friends with Brian Childs, the founder of Nine Bullets, if y'all aren't familiar, which is named from a Drive by Trucker song. They were quite influential in the early music blogger sphere in which we all sort of overlap with one another. But Brian was really supportive when I was starting my other project, Country Fried Rock, mm-hmm. like really helpful. And I now realize in retrospect, I asked some really inappropriate questions musically and like professionally. And I, I was not aware that they were not questions you should ask somebody. <laughs> like,
0: I just didn't yeah, know well, I mean, that, that yellow flag thing. Anyone. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I do want to say I was like Nine Both isn't writing like about women. That's not because of any kind of editorial choice or any like direct sexism or anything like that. Everyone who's written for them is like an amazing human. I think it's just like we were saying, representation matters and sometimes you do gravitate towards music that you can identify with. And most of the writers were men, so they mostly feature music by men um, and that kind of implicit sexism mm-hmm. that we're all a part of. So I definitely don't mm-hmm. want to make it sound like I'm mouthing them or that Brian was ignoring me.
1: I'm guilty of being part of this machine as well my personal preference happens to be a particular kind of punk country influenced music that does tend to be extremely straight white male crafted or by white male crafted. And I'm very aware of my own implicit bias in amplifying and platforming a narrow version of what is out there as well.
0: Yeah. So, you know, they're not, they weren't doing anything differently than anybody else.
1: (laughs) I did not know of this Era of Cowboy Mouth when they had Mary and Sonia playing bass at different times. And really, there's been a, a rotating cast of characters through the band at different times. But it sounds like they've really been sort of a touch point for you musically.
0: Yeah. I mean, and also I think as a, just as a person, because uh, there's like research or a statistic or something that says that uh, like you pretty much like glom onto one musical style when you're a teenager and that's kind of just what you listen to forever.
1: Yes. Tons of uh, even that. if you listen to other stuff,
0: it's what you go back to as like your comfort food. I'm 100% so guilty just, of this. Yeah, because so I think just like um, the values that the band had, the kind of attention to how they interact with their audience during concerts. They were the first band I saw live. Uh, that's totally shaped my expectations of like what a band should be like. I <laughs> we were kids, right? And um, they kept changing the age limit on these shows. By the time I turned 16, it was 18 plus. And by the time I turned 18 plus, it was 21 plus. Oh! Uh, So my my parents would take us to these. My dad went with us to a show like the night my his his
1: mother died. Oh my goodness. (laughs) So we have this in common in that my parents took us to shows starting when we were really little because they knew they were going to be out too late for a babysitter. So Mm -hmm. my parents would like take us to rock clubs. And we would sleep like in the venue. I've seen all kinds of shows. And then ancient history, it's probably illegal to do this now. But my dad used to drop me off at the 688 Punk Club in Atlanta and say, I'll be waiting out here. Just come wake me up when you're done. As the parent of a now 18 year old, there is no way I would have let my kid do that.
0: (laughs) Well, I'm glad he trusted you.
1: Rachel Golst of Adobe and Teardrops and the Rainbow Rodeo Zine. Thank you so much for sharing with me about Jenny Says and Cowboy Mouth. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Yeah, I know they have a reputation as kind of like a frat boy band, but there are a lot of people out there for for whom they've done so much. And I hope that also is a part of their legacy.
1: Absolutely. So if you're not familiar with the band, definitely go and check out some of these YouTubes, particularly of Jenny Says. And then when things start getting back to you, whatever normal is going to be in the future, go see a show. You can find out more about what we have to offer for you at OneHitHistory.com. You can support us at Patreon.com OneHitHistory. Thanks for being with us. Thanks to Jacob Fur for our theme music. You can find his catalog at JacobFurr.BandCamp.com. That's J-A-C-O-B-F-U-R-R.BandCamp.com. Thanks so much for our graphic design and logo from Keith Brogdon. You can find his work at thinkingoutlouddesign.com. Our show notes are crafted by freelance writer April Blake, who you can find at vaprilblake.com. One Hit History is a comedy podcast. We've done slightly less research than your average Wikipedia contributor. We're loose with the facts, and your mileage may vary.